Welcome to season four of the Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, professor of engineering education in the College of Engineering at Purdue University. In Research Briefs, we'll speak with engineering education researchers about what their lives are like, what they are finding out, and how their research is being used. My guest today is Dr. Carrie Douglas, Assistant Professor of Engineering Education at Purdue University and head of the SEED Lab, where SEED stands for Science and Ethics of Educational Data. Her research focuses on supporting high-quality assessment practices in engineering education. Today, I've asked her to speak about her current development of a holistic framework for online course evaluation, something that's very timely. And that particular work has led her to focus more broadly on how students are being supported during the pandemic and beyond. So Carrie, welcome to Research Briefs. Thank you for having me, this is exciting. I've admired your work and so I'm glad to share it with other people. So I've talked a little bit about this holistic framework for online course evaluation. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that? Sure. Um, so, yeah, so we developed a framework called the contextualized evaluation framework. And um, it really began uh, with the need to take a holistic view of um, online courses and rather than relying on um, one or two sources of data to really get a more holistic or a fuller picture of um, the online courses and how to evaluate them. So um, the work really started with uh, in 2015 when I was asked to lead up evaluation of some massive open online courses or MOOCs. Um, And when I was looking into how to go about evaluating them, I found that there really wasn't a whole lot of consistency in what was being evaluated and the type of metrics and numbers or um, what kind of outcomes were being reported across um, different MOOC projects or entities. And so um, I ended up leading up a proposal that was supported by NSF to study um, how MOOCs should be evaluated, or that's what led to the contextualized evaluation framework. And from my perspective and others, like evaluations really, when we use multiple sources of meaningful evidence to arrive at a judgment about the goodness of the thing that we're evaluating. So at the end of the day, evaluation should be about gathering information of what we think is really would make the the product or tool or the thing being evaluated actually good, um, what we value um, about offering it. So um, when I was looking at that and doing that work, um, I found that approaches that were being used were focused either primarily on the design of the course or they were focused on just um, what kind of outcomes the students, like the, or not outcomes, the kind of reactions that students had to the course, such as the end of course surveys. Um, but there just seemed to be more missing pieces 
Um, so I would, so it was really developed from the need to have that fuller picture that was going to provide the most meaningful information for the larger group of stakeholders. So um, that really began with doing a lot of interviews with different stakeholders, um, people that the platforms are administrators from institutions that were financing or putting money behind offering the MOOCs, um, the instructors themselves that were teaching the courses, the learners who take them. So a lot of research from those different stakeholders to determine um, what kind of metrics really um, were worth capturing, what would make a MOOC good. So you had mentioned um, when you spoke with me that you found something initially called the that you said was the gold standard, the previous gold standard of um, online education uh, evaluation. Could you say a little bit about that? Sure. So I think the most pop, I, my understanding is the most popular, it seems to be the most popular um, evaluation tool for online courses um, is the quality matters framework. And so courses will become, they'll get designed and then um, they go through this review process where then they are um, either given feedback on how to meet the standards to get certified or like get that stamp of it's been approved um, or they go ahead and get the approval. So either feedback on how to make it. So it's, but the, the evaluation criteria or the, what they're evaluating are based off of um a lot of literature on best practices in online education um, and how they is rolled out though is um, primarily focused on the design aspects of the course. So, you know, the things like having solid alignment between the learning objectives, the course activities, the assessments. Um, they also are looking for things like um, you know, accessibility, mm -hmm. uh, um, very much, again, very much focused on the design of, of those materials, um, the mm -hmm. course. So then another model that is often used in educational technology is the Kirkpatrick model. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the model that I was kind of referring to before that it really evaluates the outputs of the education. So the learner's reactions, um, you know, what kind of behavioral changes they made as the organization made changes as a result of this, uh, that model doesn't include the pedagogy or the design of the materials. It's more just the straight outputs. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to have a framework that was holistic, that we were looking at it from, you know, a variety of perspectives of what leads to a good learning opportunity. So I, I know quite well that you describe this uh, framework as still obviously being under development, which really all frameworks always are, um, but that you have uh, published a article, a conference proceedings from the 2020 American Society of Engineering Education. Um, do you want to say a little bit about what the framework is? I, I know people will be curious. And then also, 
what your next kinds of developments are? Sure. So the so currently the framework has five levels of evaluation. And as I mentioned, this is or you said uh, this is a work in progress. We keep because we took we made it for MOOCs and then we adapted it for professional learners. Um, and and you know, so then that was another sort of change where we were getting a little more specific with who the framework was applying to. And now that we're working with more online courses um, that are offered for university credit, that sort of changed uh, the framework somewhat as well. So the, the current framework is um, learner satisfaction. So in terms of what did they like, what didn't they like? Um, the second level is the course design. And so is it aligned, um, you know, in terms of the content, the assessment, the pedagogy is used, are they following, you know, good practices? Um, the third level is the actual delivery of the course. So this is something I think is really important. Um, to what extent is there a genuine community of inquiry? You know, do the learners get feedback? Is there someone who from the teaching team that is genuinely interacting with learners? Are they just left on their own? You know, is there someone who knows something <laughs> interacting with them? Um, there's also the fourth level is learner engagement. And so this is in a few different ways. One is, you know, what materials are they actually engaging with? Um, and then what groups of learners are engaging with what materials? So we think like looking at this, we're able to identify areas for continuous improvement and how to, you know, if we can see that there's a quiz um, that very few people watch the module before they take the quiz or, you know, these sorts of things where mm -hmm. we can point out what's actually happening behaviorally. Um, and the fifth outcome or the fifth level of evaluation is the learner outcome. So to what extent do the learners achieve the learning goals? of the course. So the course sets out for these things. It's like what percentage of learners actually achieve that? You know, um, so that's that's the current state of where the framework's at. And I know you said you are working now with uh, uh, Julie Martin, who is also a, a former podcast guest at the Ohio State University, um, to look at some things during the pandemic. Isn't that correct? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So because of um, the work that we've been doing on the evaluation framework, um, I've been looking at a lot of different online courses mm -hmm. <laughs> and different ways of offering them. Um, and the thing I was noticing is how difficult having that genuine community of inquiry really is. And I know um, you've talked about that a little bit on your right, previous podcast. Right. Um, yeah, Ruth Wirtz um, was speaking about community of inquiry and also the last episode uh, of Research Briefs discussed um, a new podcast called uh, reflective teaching in a digital age, and they had Randy Garrison, who's kind of the creator of the community of inquiry model, as a, a guest. Um, so, if some of the listeners are interested in community of inquiry, there's definitely some 
some other places to peek around about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, that's really cool that they had him on. I definitely want to listen to that. Um, but um, so from the from the research we've been doing, just seeing how difficult it really is to establish that. And it's one thing when we're talking about master's level students, you know, people further along. And when we were notified that we would not be returning back to campus in the spring, that courses were going to be remote, um, my biggest concern became this aspect of online education. Mm-hmm. You know, the instructors were moving to what we would call um emergency remote teaching Mm -hmm. where this is not just online learning. I mean, this is like, they did not take months to prepare to teach these courses online. We had a week, I believe, right? We had spring break. We had spring break to get it transitioned. And so, um, you know, what was going to happen in terms of supporting students with each other, um, you know, how readily available were they going to be able to have contact with their instructors um, and sort of just really that aspect was really sort of bothering me because I was thinking, you know, instructors are they're going to be held accountable for teaching the content. There will be into course surveys taken, um, but who is capturing the kind of support students have during this time and what this is going to mean for them moving forward? Um, and so as I was thinking about this during that spring break, I have, you know, just, I say a lot of nervous energy and was feeling in so many ways, just sort of helpless. Like I think a lot of us, there's so much uncertainty and, um, even in my own life. And so I was thinking in that time, I wanted to do something that felt meaningful, um, you know, in response to what was happening because of the pandemic. And so I sort of just really focused a lot of my energy into generating resources to help faculty support students and thinking about how to do research to um, capture what was happening. So uh, Julie Martin, as you mentioned, is a a good friend of mine, and um, we had not collaborated before on a research project, but we were just discussing this because her research has been a lot in engineering students' social capital. And so as I was talking to her about being concerned about how students are going to be supported, what kind of, you know, like, I mean, faculty hadn't been, most faculty are not trained before they teach anything, right? I mean, they do, we get hired to do a job that we didn't get trained for. <laughs> um, but fewer have been trained to teach anything online. And then even if you did go through one of those, you know, um, professional development or had an instructional designer working with you, you know, how, you know, the need for students to be interacting with each other or, having that instructor, pre- I mean, it just seemed like so few people have been trained and skilled in this to no fault of their own. It's just the reality. So as we were discussing this and sort of thinking about it, then I 
um, decided um, that I wanted to lead a, a proposal called Rapid, which um, I can't recall the exact acronym. I, I think I had looked it up. Let's see. Let's see. Okay. Did I put it in my notes? It's something like Rapid Response to Research or something like that. But yeah, it's it's a, a grant that you can get to capture something. It's a, a relatively small amount, but you, the turnaround's really quick so that you can have those opportunities. Right. So I think it ends up rapid rapid response research. Yes, I did there look it go. up. There you go. So yeah, actually, it's about two hundred thousand dollars for one year. So it's not too bad. No. Um, but 200, I know, in terms of the bigger grants and stuff, it's relatively small. Um, but uh, so we, you know, we wrote up the idea to do case studies because we couldn't control anything going on, mm -hmm. you know, and case studies are perfect for studying what happened, not, you know, you're just sort of trying to capture and go deep at, you know, studying relationships happening there in situations that the researcher has little or no control. So um, we identified some cases where um, this, the courses were being moved online, but they were also team-based because there's very little research on doing team-based collaborative courses in engineering, you know, online. Um, and so we were real curious what were faculty going to do and how are they going to facilitate this teamwork? How are they going to facilitate students interacting with each other? Um, and what kind of social capital did students have in their courses and in their engineering time? And um, I think what we weren't expecting, which now, I mean, I think everybody understands, um, was... Uh, how much they perceived um, different support during that pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Could you so, say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, most of us have like the solid people in our lives that are with us forever, you know, or like longstanding relationships. Um, but they aren't necessarily the ones that are helping us professionally always. I mean, there are people who, you know, we have mentors and, but then that we also have, you know, like, like my parents are supportive or my spouse or my best friend from high school, those sorts of things. So and during the pandemic, those relationships were really strengthening, mm -hmm. but the access and to the, what we would like from the theoretical perspective, what we called the uh, weaker, the weaker ties, um, were essentially being cut, mm -hmm. and those are really important because those are those interactions on campus where, you know, maybe it's the uh, person in the grad office that you could just pop in on, um, or the person at the you know advisor in first year engineering um, that. If you were on campus, you would just see if they were available or make a quick appointment and how to do that online. Um, involvement in professional organizations, um, interactions with TAs. Like I think that really reduced like, mm -hmm. um, so there are all these 
small ways that the students per like they perceived all these intangible things um, that we were able to capture as being significantly mm. less. Um, and then what we're seeing now um, is, you know, the the students that really have started during the pandemic mm-hmm. and how little connections they're forming to campus despite you know efforts you know like supposedly there's on you know in-person instruction happening and you know all this and to see that they're still not forming natural relationships um that with the social distancing and these other precautions that it, it really is challenging to develop informal interactions mm-hmm and just how you know those are so important, uh, particularly with those those weaker ties, as you said, which could be the person that might be able to answer a homework question or give you some specific kind of thing that the people in your immediate sphere just don't have the expertise to do. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Like, um, you know, one of the things we talked about was. Um, you know, in class, when we're all physically there, I can look at the person sitting beside me. I don't even have to know their name, but I can ask them, did you catch what Strebler said? You know, or when did she say that quiz was? You know, you can ask that without having their contact information. And the first year students in the case study that we looked at um, talked about walking to class with students. So they would walk there, walk back pre-pandemic. The pandemic hit and they didn't even know their last name. Mm-hmm. So they had no longer had, it was like, you know, the rug got ripped out from under them to them. No way They're, to find them. <laughs> no way to find them. They're in this course of 300 students or whatever. And I don't know, their first name's Jenny, you know? <laughs> um, that was really different than the case study with um, the senior students because they had pretty well-developed networks, you know, with roommates um, that were in the same major, their um, team, the teams um, were actually friends, you know, they spent, so it was, I think our attention was really looking at you know, the, the earlier the it, students, the beginning students, because they, they hadn't had that time on campus to develop all the connections that we know are, are so important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you were really able to see through your framework this, the importance of measuring what the community how the community might be formed and supported um, and seeing then that that's always important, but perhaps maybe more so in an online environment where you don't have those informal, natural ways to create those, that support system. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm, I think in the last year, um, I definitely have developed the opinion that uh, one of my most important jobs as an instructor is to facilitate the relationships my students have with each other. 
And it's not just about the relationship they have with me. And I think I need to be available for sure. Um, but that they are resources to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will go beyond one course with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that these students, they, you know, the student, especially well, in this time, we're all going, we're all having the shared experience in some way. You know, we're all living in this time of pandemic, living in this time where, you know, um, advocating that Black Lives Matter seems to be a controversy, <laughs> you know, that it's not, you know, we're going through these things together as a society. And I think having sharing these experiences, it, we can be resources for each other. We can support each other during this time. It's not just, you know, in one particular course or one thing, but I, I tell the students that, you know, you could be developing your best friend for life right now, mm-hmm. you know, because you're sharing so much. You have so much in common right now. You're going, you know, your your first year at the university and things are messed up, you know, but at least you have each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think not expecting them to form those relationships naturally because, um, you know, all, with all the safety precautions um, in place, it's very difficult. Right. They keep trying. It's very difficult. They're not, it's just not happening natural, I don't think. Um, and then in an online course, I don't even, you know, it, it's super challenging. I mean, especially with you know, most uh, sort of the most common version going is asynchronous, mm-hmm. uh, giving students in different time zones flexibility, but then that can create a really lonely experience without, you know, really being purposeful about how you establish that. And, you know, that students feel that if they don't show up, someone's going to notice, mm-hmm. someone care, you know, someone's going to realize that, you know, they're not taking part. Um, and being able to hold each other accountable and again, going through it together, I think is super important, especially, like I said, especially for, we're talking about 18 year olds, 19 year olds, not, it's very different than, you know, a 22 year old doing a master's degree, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Although we all like to have somebody notice if we're there or not. (laughs) Yes. I still, I still do. Uh, notice want to be noticed I guess when I feel like my presence means something right right so um I usually end the podcast by asking um what advice or takeaways you have for the listeners and I, I have a request with this and again you could also have other takeaways but we always I always have a pre-podcast meeting with the guests and in our meeting you told me about an example that you were able to study um, in electrical and computer engineering that was just really uplifting so um, I, I wondered as if if you would indulge me in having that at least be one of your your takeaways sure. of of that experience. Awesome. Um, yeah. So we're actually currently writing up the results of this case study. Um, so we don't have all of them yet. Um, 
but I've been very excited about it also because um, we're studying an introductory level uh, course on circuits, which is, uh, I think this course, regardless of the institution you're at, sort of has a reputation of being just like a horrible, <laughs> like people like intro circuits. It's just, for yes. it gets a lot of people. It's, a ch- it's got some challenging concepts. Uh, and often, of- often everybody has to take it too, even if you're not going to be an electrical engineer. And so I've had like chemical engineering friends said, oh my God, I had to take circuits and I'm just not a circuits person. And mm-hmm. so that's in the mix too. Right, right. Um, yeah, there's a lot that this is not what they, they don't see themselves using the information necessarily. I mean, they, they don't get it, but um so the course is typically you know um a couple hundred students in a section they'll have recitation um there's also for the ece students there's also a lab course that they take sort of in companion um but most students you know in all the different disciplines have to take it Mm -hmm. so they're not in there um so traditionally, you know, they go to the in-person, they would go to the lecture and they go to the recitation. Um, well, over the course of some time, we'd been doing rec- um, doing some collaboration with an instructor um, who's very much interested in introducing more active learning into the classroom and wanting um, to uh, develop videos in support of that. And so I was thinking that if they, you know, he could flip the classroom, the, the time they had, in person could be more learner centered, um, which is a big undertaking and something like that because it is a very yes. content heavy course. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of students do not do well in the course. I mean, it's something that it, it's a tough one. Um, and you have a lot of instructors that teach it. Um, so getting coordination across them can be real challenging. And so even though he'd made some changes in person, it wasn't still, it wasn't like one semester, he just flipped it all. You know, like, I think he was taking it very wisely, which was what could get done this year. What's my like small bite step this year. Um, so he had the videos going in person um, and started doing it during the recitations. They started doing some group work, not a ton, but they were starting to just have conversations in there. Well, then he decided with the um, during the summer of 2020 that that was the time to have the whole course online, um, and it was going to be asynchronous. So he had the videos um, going, but he placed so instead of having recitation, or in, um, he created learning groups where they were in the same team throughout the course of the semester. Um, and they had homework assignments where um, there were the traditional calculations and you know the equations that they had to learn and do, but he also built in um, discussion questions um, where they were having to make more meaning out of it, um, you know, and sort of think a little bit more conceptually about what was going on, take it broader out the bigger context of the calculation. So um, as we have been, so we interviewed students, we did the surveys. And the thing that's been fascinating is um, 
how supported the students felt in that course and just how positive that the, because we've been saying this course for, you know, a good, like maybe three years now, the changes along the way. And this was by far, um, like the student reaction piece was way more positive than the previous semesters. And it may be that they were just so happy. I mean, because they knew it was a pandemic and their expectations were different or they just went off of the spring and that was like crazy. I don't know. But they they expressed so much appreciation for the instructor um, because of how he designed that course and was very purposeful about creating small groups of students working together. Um, and I don't even know if they realized that's what made the difference because they talked a lot about how just how positive they were about the course and the enjoyable experience not that it wasn't hard it was challenging some of the students we talked with didn't get A's you know but um they they thought it was a really positive learning experience um by and large so so what I find so uplifting about that is that I know I worry about the online experience and everybody being so, you know, have have a screen in front of them and all of my students now are just these tiny little pictures on the gallery view um, and how much harder it is to create a community. But you have an example of, again, being very purposeful and having them do meaningful things and, and really thinking about it being quite intentional about it, but the end result was that the students felt more su more supported and more connected than they did in the face-to-face -face setting. Um, and so I, I think that's a real inspiration that if one really is serious about the community building aspect, that you can be quite successful in it. I think that is so true, Ruth. I do. Um, you know, I people will often, for years now, people will say, oh, well, we should do a, a you know, a comparison of this course online and, a, and this course in person. Right. And like somehow this like experiment is going to, this you know, random control, like it's somehow it's going to just solve, like answer the question, is one better than the other? And to me, it's just such a nonsense question because it's how it's done you know it's really how how we do it and how we design and implement the you know the course it, whether it's online or in person and I know I'm like you like my preference by far is to be in person I mean, I much prefer walking around and looking over students shoulders you know but I can create breakout rooms and pop in and out of them. And this generation of students, they're a lot more comfortable with the, you know, with technology than, or, you know, the word I'm trying to say, you know, distance. And I mean, they do so much more electronically. Um, mm -hmm. It's how they've grown up. Right. Um, the digital natives, right? There you go. Um but it's, it's all about how you, how it's done. Mm -hmm. So that takes me, I know we're wrapping up here, but that's another take home to me is, so I have this holistic evaluation framework for online courses. And I, 
really think that all courses should be evaluated holistically. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now, the best resource right now for people is to find your um, ASW article, and we could put a link to that on the um, the Purdue website. I think it is called, I have it up here, A Framework for Evaluation of Large Online Graduate Level Courses for Professional Learners by yourself and your student, Hilary Mersdorf. Um, from the 2020 um, American Society of Engineering Education Conference. Um, But I know you're also um, developing uh, resources for instructors as well. Um, So do you want them to contact you, people to contact you if they're interested or... I'd say stay tuned because we don't, yes, stay tuned because I don't have anything to hand off right now. But we are, as you said, um, creating. um, So we have a project um, funded by the Koch Foundation um, that's essentially applying some machine learning um, to give us information in the framework. And then we're visual. We're trying to visualize that information for instructors to evaluate their courses. So, um, I'll be posting things as great that comes about. So, and the Seed Lab has. I think you've got a, a good student who's your social network person, right? <laughs> social media person. Yes. Excellent. Great. Well. Is there anything else you'd like to pass on to the listeners before we end? I don't think so. I'm trying, I'm grabbing. I think we got a lot of it. I'm I'm happy to, anyone, you know, has questions. I'm always happy to interact. Um, But I really appreciate you having me on. This was fun. I always enjoy talking with you. Well, I enjoy talking to you too. Um, And I think with that, I will say arrivederci, adios. (laughs) Ciao. Ciao. (laughs) Thanks again, Carrie. Take care. I'll see you later. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music, A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.